church, the way you're waking us up, calling us on, uh, showing us who you're created to be, uh, what it means to be part of your movement that you're unleashing here at Rocky Peak, a movement of passionate Christ followers who are pursuing you and loving people and, and serving sacrificially, sharing the message and the movement of Jesus. And, and Lord, today we realize that today it's just kind of the next step in this journey. Like every week we gather in your name to be taught by your spirit, uh, to encounter you so that we're empowered to take the next step in this journey. And so, God, we pray that today would be that next step as we continue this series and talk about what does it mean to be changed? What does it mean to have new life? What's this new life you've come to give us, um, that you came to die for, that we could experience? And so we pray that you'd unpack that for us personally, by name, individually, in our lives, what that means. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our story starts today. Uh, a long time ago, it, they, they'd been in the wilderness out in the desert for, for 40 years. And uh, in many ways, it was sort of the, the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, 40 years ago, God had brought them out of bondage, slavery in Egypt. And uh, it was amazing. You know, the 10 plagues, the Red Sea, uh, meeting God at Mount Sinai, fireworks there. The next 40 years, God supernaturally providing manna. Uh, for their food, water from the rock on multiple occasions. Uh, Clothes never wear out, shoes never wear out. God is just with them every step of the way, protecting from their enemies. And so in some ways, these 40 years are the best of times, but in other ways, they are the worst of times. Because it is 40 years in the desert, you know, and Zaborego, you know, 40 years. And that is a long time. And they were hot days, and they were cold nights, and Yes, the food was supernatural, but it was manna. You know, like, what is it? And, and morning, noon, and night, manna. And it gets old and, and often being thirsty. And then there's just the boredom factor. I mean, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, just waiting for the older generation to die so that you can go into the promised land. Because the first generation, they had rejected God's leadership and so on. And, and so at times, tempers would flare and They would get impatient, and there would be talk of a coup. There would be talk of a rebellion. Let's get a new leader. Let's get some new gods. Let's go a different direction. And, of course, these times are times of crisis, times where the whole plan could fall apart. And so God would often step in with with supernatural judgment and and so on just to stop from destroying the whole nation. And this was one of those days. We're not sure how it happened, but but we're told that the people began to grumble. The mob scene was beginning to, to form. Moses, you brought us out here to die. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? We're just going to die out here. We're, we're, we want some regular food. We're sick of the manna. We're tired of being thirsty. And this mob is growing. A revolt is growing that could be disastrous. And so that's when it started. I don't know who the first was to notice that. First it was just a, a single snake. The call had gone out. And snakes across the whole wilderness were having like a convention in Israel. Poisonous vipers, God had called them, and from across the desert they came. And the mob at first didn't recognize, they didn't realize what was going on. They're ready to revolt, they're ready to, to take over, and all of a sudden, someone notices a poisonous viper, and they start screaming, and then the people around them start screaming, and then all of a sudden, there's other snakes, and now everyone's screaming, and it's panicking, and they're running for their lives, and and the stakes are starting to strike and to bite, and people are starting to die. And 
And today we're continuing this series that we've been in for, what, the last month and a half now? Uh, it's a series in the Gospel of John. For those of you brand new, it's a series called Revealed. You can see it on our walls. It's a story of the life of Jesus as told through the eyes of one of his closest companions, uh, perhaps his best friend, a man by the name of John, John the Apostle. And if you were here last week, we were in John chapter 3, looking at the most famous conversation in the history of the world, a conversation between Jesus and a, a religious leader, a top spiritual leader of Israel in Jerusalem, a man with a Greek name, though Israeli by birth. His name was Nicodemus. And it's recorded in John chapter 3. And we last week looked at the first half of this story. And today we're going to be looking at the second half of the conversation. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. And we'll pick up the story at verse 9. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Jesus had told Nicodemus that in order to have a relationship with God, in order to be part of Jesus' movement, in order to be part of the kingdom of God, that something has to happen to us. Something supernatural has to happen to us. God's spirit has to come into us, change us from the inside out. It's a whole new relationship with God and a whole new life. And he, Jesus described it as being like born again, like a whole new start in life. And Nicodemus was struggling with this. Though he was a great religious teacher, familiar with the Old Testament, he's struggling with this. And so as we open the conversation today, he's asking Jesus, how can these things be? How can this really work out? I don't get it. Is this really possible? Kind of pushing back on Jesus. I'm not sure I'm really following you. I'm not sure I'm really buying into this. And so in chapter 3, in verse 9, Jesus has just told him, you have to be born again. It comes by the Holy Spirit, supernatural birth. And verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? I mean, how does this really work? How, how can this work? Um, it, this sounds impossible. And, and Jesus says, time out. You, you need to listen to me. I mean, I know what I'm talking about. Remember at the start of the story in verse 1, Nicodemus had come at night. His opening words to Jesus were, Jesus, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one could do these miracles that you're doing unless God was with him. And yet now Jesus is telling him, you got to be born again. You have this, and he's pushing back and going, I don't get it. And Jesus' first thing he's going to say is, hey, you need to be listening to me. You know, I, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there. I've come from hell. I'm telling you the truth. And so in verse 10, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. I mean, you're the man. And, and you don't understand these things. You of all people, you should get this. The Old Testament talked about a time when the Holy Spirit would come and give new life. You should be getting this. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know. I know what I'm talking about. We testify to what we have seen. I, I'm not making this stuff up. But still, you people, you don't, you don't accept our testimony. You came and said as a teacher from God, but now you're not buying in. Little sidebar, we don't really know why Jesus said we. Is it we as, as in himself and the, the disciples? We as in me and John the Baptist? Is it we, me and my father? All the above, we don't know why. But the point is clear. Hey, you need to be sitting up, paying attention, listening here. I know what I'm talking about. Verse 12, I've spoken to you about earthly things, you know, like being born again. And, and you don't believe. You're not buying in. So how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I tell you, the next life, what's coming? You know, you're not even believing the basics, like kingdom 101. Verse 13, he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, talking about himself, the Son of Man. So you need to be paying attention. So, so Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says, time out, you should be getting this. 
uh, you're Israel's teacher. You should get this, and you need to trust me in this. You need to be listening. You need to be paying attention. I know what I'm talking about. And now he launches in for the first time in this gospel. Jesus is beginning to explain why he came to planet Earth. Now I want you to think with me. Back in John chapter one, in the opening statement, John starts off and he he tells us big picture. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But John's never really unpacked for us in his fullness why the Word came. He told us he came to give us life, but he's never told us the mechanism. How is this going to happen? How is this life going to be transferred? And so now for the very first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself is going to begin to lay this out. And what he's going to say is, you need to be born again. You need this new life that I'm offering, but this new life is going to come through my death. And the way he's going to share it with this scholar, Old Testament scholar, he's going to take him back to the story we started the day with, back in Numbers 21. And so Israel's coming out of Egypt. It's 40 years into the desert. There's this crisis. There's this coup. God sends in the snakes. And typically what would happen whenever there was a rebellion, because these would happen every few years, when typically what would happen is God sends in some kind of judgment to kind of wake them up and stop them so he wouldn't have to destroy the whole nation. What happens is the, the nation wakes up in the midst of this judgment. They go to Moses and say, we blew it, our bad. Would you please call God off? And so Moses would go to God and say, they blew it, would you please have mercy? God pulls back whatever he's doing, and we move on with the story. But this particular case, something different happens. In this particular case, God tells Moses to do something that will not make sense for another almost 1,500 years. He tells him, okay, what I want you to do, as people are dying now in the nation, I want you to, I want you to, to cast a, a mold of a bronze snake, just like these vipers that are biting people. And once you get that made, I want you to take a long pole, like an antenna, and I want you to put it up really high in the center of the camp in the nation. And then tell the people that are sick and dying that if they'll just look at the, the snake, they'll be healed. If they just trust me and look at the snake, they'll be healed and, the, and they won't die. And so Jesus goes back to this story to say, you ask me how these things can be. How can a man be born again? How can new life come? He says, a new life is going to come through my death as I am lifted up. And so in verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him, kind of looks to him like you look to the snake, you might have eternal life. And so he kind of lays it out there. Now, I'm sure that Nicodemus does not have a clue what Jesus is talking about. This is often the case in the Gospel of John. People are always misunderstanding him. Hey, I could give you this uh, rivers of living water. Oh, give it to me so I don't have to come here so I can drink. (laughs) I have to to draw water. Oh, uh, I'm the bread of life. Oh, could we have some? Um, We're hungry. Uh, You know, it's just all the way through the Gospel of John. We're going to see this. And here's another case where he says this to Nicodemus. I'm sure Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. So we, we look back and we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus will one day be lifted up on a cross. It's clear to us, but this is the start of the ministry. No one at this point even knows Jesus is going to die other than Jesus, uh, let alone being crucified. And so he says to Nicodemus, I have to be lifted up by, like the snake, and I'm sure he's like, huh, I don't get it. 
And so what's going to happen now is the Apostle John is going to jump in and give some commentary for us as readers to explain what Jesus just said. Now, before we look at verse 16, though, I need to do a little sidebar here on red-letter Bibles, okay? How many of you have a red-letter Bible today? Good. I want to see how many people I'm going to irritate. All right. Now, you know what a red-letter Bible is, right? A red-letter Bible is a Bible where they ran out of black ink. So on discount, you pick up one with red ink, and that may, no. Uh, You know, a red-letter Bible is one where the words of Jesus are in red. And so if you have a red-letter Bible, like mine's red-letter right here, it verse starts at verse 10, goes red-letter, and it goes red all the way down to verse 21, indicating these are the words of Jesus. The problem is, is that many, if not most, modern scholars do not believe that all these words are of Jesus. They believe that some of the words are of Jesus, and at a certain point, John starts commenting on this. Uh, most probably modern scholars believe that after verse 15, the statement about the snake, that's the end of the conversation with Nicodemus. And now what we have in the begin, the, the, the rest is John's commentary on this conversation. And so you might be asking, like, well, why do people disagree over this? And it's a very simple reason is that in the Greek language, ancient Greek language, there were no quotation marks. And, and so you don't really know like when, there's many times this happens in the Gospel of John. It's not really clear. Now, was that Jesus still talking or has John started commenting? Not really, always really clear. And so all you can do is analyze the vocabulary being used. Is this vocabulary, the kind of words that Jesus typically uses in John? Or is it more what John uses? And you kind of you make your judgment. Um, of course, in one sense, either way, it doesn't matter because whether it's Jesus talking or John talking, it's both inspired by the Holy Spirit, so the message is the same, Right? But, but for our purposes here, uh, my, my, bet, my money is on verse 15, that verse 15 is the final, this enigmatic statement of Jesus, as, as the snake is being lifted up, so I'll be lifted up. That's kind of the end of their conversation. And now what we have is John jumping in and giving us a fuller commentary with, the, with the, you know, the advantage of time to explain what Jesus is talking about. And so at verse 16, we have what is the most famous verse probably in the history of the Bible, and the whole Bible, and it's, uh, it's kind of the message of Jesus in a nutshell. And so here we go. For God loved the world so much, so loved the world, he loved the world so much, that he gave his one and only son. So God loved this world, this fallen planet that John's already told us in chapter 1, rejected him when he came, that is a world of darkness that hates the light, in spite of being the fallen planet, the dark planet, the dark side, so to speak, in spite of that, that God loves this world. He loves the people. And so in spite of that, he reaches out in love and he gives them his very best, the one person that he cares more about anyone else, his son, who's at his father's side, we learned from chapter one. He gives the son so that everyone who believes in him, just like uh, Israel looking to the snake, Everyone who believes in him, trusts in him, uh, can be solved of the biggest problem of all. We, we have eternal life. Um, so whoever believes in him shall not perish like Israel was doing in the wilderness, but, but they will have eternal life. Interesting, just sidebar on this. Uh, last week I was reading in USA Today, and uh, they were talking about last year's BCS championship football game. And uh, for those of you football fans, you know it's not football fans, it's kind of like the Super Bowl of college football. And last year was the 
University of Florida against the University of Oklahoma, this big game. The star quarterback for University of Florida is a man named Tim Tebow, who is also the Heisman Trophy winner, strong Christ follower, very passionate Christ follower. And so last year, uh, he knew this was going to be an internationally televised game, and so on his eyelids, you know, they put that like that black eyeshadow type stuff on here. Uh, on that, uh, on the black, uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, it, he writes in silver, John three sixteen. And so he's the star quarterback. The cameras are following the whole game. The whole game, he's looking at him, John three sixteen. <laughs> in that one game, as a result of that one game, after the game, John three sixteen was Googled, according to USA Today, 94 million times. 94 million times. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it's like, way to go, Tim. So I'm just, I'm praying he wins everything now. I mean, it's like every week, build a little sermon, you know. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, so it's the most kind of well-known verse probably in the history of the world, and yet it's largely unknown. 94 million people are going, I don't know what that is. That's a lot of people. So I've never even heard the basic message of Jesus, right? And so anyway, this, John lays out this basic message. Jesus says, as the snake is lifted up, I'll have to be lifted up. Conversation ends. John says, let me explain what he means. God loves this crazy world so much, he gives his very best so whoever looks to him like Israel looks at the snake can have eternal life, won't perish. Then we move into the final verses of this passage where we looked at these actually in depth a couple weeks ago and the message about Jesus cleansing the temple. We talked about the two sides of God, tough side, tender side. We came and we really spent a lot of time here. So I mean, I, but I want to go over them quickly just so we don't miss them. Verse 17, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. Though it's a fallen world, a world in rebellion, uh, Jesus did not come on a mission to destroy or to condemn, uh, but he came to save the world, a rescue mission. And so whoever believes in him is not condemned. Like the moment a man or a woman decides that Jesus is who he claims to be and decides to follow him, give their life, they, they trust in him. At that moment, they're no longer condemned. Uh, the snake bite is gone. And, uh, and so they're not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. In other words, uh, the human race is snake bit. Uh, the serpent has bit us. We've been bit by sin. And, and ever since the garden, we're the fallen race. We're the race in rebellion. In the, in the desert, God raises up, Moses raises up this snake and says, whoever looks to the snake will be healed. Jesus says, I am the one who's going to be lifted up. Whoever looks to me is healed. But if you refuse to look to me, you're going down because you've already been bit. You've already got the sin. You've already got the, 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 the venom of Satan in you. you know, you're, you're already sick. Uh, the antidote's been given, but if you don't take it, there's no other antidote. You know, you're on the Titanic. God sent the rescue ship, Jesus, but if you don't get off, you're going down with it. And so it's kind of an either-or thing. The good news is the life has come. Get off the ship. Have the new life. The bad news is if you reject it, you're going down. It's an either-or. There's no middle ground. And so in verse uh, 19, he says, this is the verdict. Uh, for those who refuse to get off the ship, uh, there's, they're standing before the judge of all the earth. You're condemned. What's the verdict that's going to be read? Well, here's the verdict. That light has come into the world. Uh, Jesus has come to show us the path to life, what's right, good, and true. And, uh, and light's come into the world. But men loved darkness because, uh, instead of the light, because their deeds were evil. 
And so for some of us, there's a refusal to move towards the light because we want to hang on to the deeds of darkness, the deeds of evil, the deeds of destruction, the dysfunction. We want to hold on to it. And so following the light would mean letting go of the dark. And we're not willing to let go of the dark side to get the light. And so he goes on, everyone who does evil hates the light. There's this hatred of what's right and good and true. And he'll not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I'd rather be in denial and pretend that I'm okay than to come to the light and have to admit that I'm out of line. And so in verse 21, but whoever uh, lives by the truth, who embraces this light, who follows the light, who follows Jesus, is born again. Whoever lives by the truth, they're going to move towards the light because so it can be plainly seen that what's been done in their life has been done through God. You think of this, when, when you come to Christ and he changes your life, what do you do? You move towards the light and you want everyone to know that the change in your life is, is supernatural as a result of what God's done. So, so instead of running from the light, you move towards the light and you want everyone to see what God's done in your life. Okay? So that's the passage. So, so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, I'm pushing back. I'm not sure I buy that. Jesus says, trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Let me explain. There's a connection between my death and your life. I have to be lifted up. And so if you receive this gift, you'll have new life, the new DNA. You'll be born again, a whole start of a whole new life. But you have to leave the darkness behind in order to receive this new life. Okay, so that's the flow of the passage. Now, uh, the time we have together, I want to focus a little bit on this new life that we have. There in your note sheet is a section called Born Again, the start of a whole new life. And I, I want us as a church to understand some of the changes that happen to us when we become a Christ follower, how this new life works. And I just want to highlight two big picture principles real quickly and then talk about some practical applications, some implications for our life. So let's jump in. Number one. The first principle uh, is kind of the obvious one that jumps out of us, leaps off the page here, but I don't want to miss it, is that our life flows from his death. This is what Jesus wants us to understand, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Why did he come? Jesus wants to be real clear. He came to die, that out of his death and being lifted up would come our life. We could be born again. There's a connection between his death and our life. And, of course, this is the central message of the whole New Testament. If you were here last year, uh, we were doing a study. This year our big study is in the Gospel of John, uh, revealed. Last year our big study was in the book of Romans, and it was called The Way. And when there we talked about this, we called this phenomena the Great Exchange. Do you remember that? The Great Exchange, his life for our life. And the New Testament describes this exchange in several different ways. But let me give you two or three examples. Often it will describe it in terms of a sacrifice. Uh, one life for another life. Kind of the picture all the way through the Old Testament. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Our sin put on him, our life for his life, this great exchange. Uh, another key word in the New Testament to describe this great exchange is redemption. Uh, we get kind of used to that word, but in ancient times, if you went to a slave market, you could buy a slave 
and then set them free. You could redeem them from slavery. And so we are the fallen race, sold into bondage under sin, incapable of breaking out and being who we're supposed to be. And, and so Jesus comes, and if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so he, he pays a price and redeems us for the life we are supposed to live. Uh, the word redemption in ancient times often referred to POWs. You go to battle with your enemy uh, after they capture some of your men, and you could redeem those men by paying a price to release them from the enemy forces. And so Jesus has come to release us from the kingdom of darkness and to redeem us into the kingdom of light. Uh, another key word that's used is the word ransom. Uh, we're familiar with this. Uh, we hear this all the time. Someone, a, a child is abducted and he's held for ransom. The idea, an exchange, a payment of money for the life of the child. Jesus said, ah, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And so, and so we have these multiple different pictures in the New Testament of this one big truth that there's a connection between his life and our death. And in this passage, Jesus chooses to illustrate it by this story from the Old Testament. And he says, here's how it works. I'm going to be lifted up, and if you look to me and you trust in me to heal you, like Israel healed, then you will be healed. As you, it's, it's not about you earning it. It's not about you deserving it. It's about you being sick and looking to me and trusting in me, and you will be healed, and this new life will come into you. Um, this phrase, being lifted up, becomes a key phrase in the Gospel of John. It's, it's used over and up. It doesn't just mean Jesus being lifted up on the cross. It, it refers to his being lifted up on the cross and then eventually being lifted up into heaven. It's all part of the process of his return. And so there on your note sheet, for example, uh, John 8, 28, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I'm the one I claim to be. Or John 12, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. And so Jesus is going to be lifted up to be the ruler of all creation. The path to that is being lifted up via the cross. It's the first step in this exaltation process. And, and, and so right here at the very beginning and this early stages of Jesus' ministry and the Gospel of John, before he's even got public big time in Capernaum, this nighttime conversation with this religious leader, and he says, how can these things be? How can a man receive new life? How can we start all over? I don't get it. Not sure I buy it. Jesus says, let me tell you, you need to be paying attention to me because I know what I'm talking about, and here's the secret that your life, your being born again is tied to my death. There is a connection. Okay? So that's the first thing I want to highlight. Now, um, for those of you who are here today and you've not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, but there's something stirring in your heart. It may be the first time here. It may be the 15th year here. But for whatever reason, there's something stirring. You say, I want that. I want that new life. I want to be forgiven. I want to have this new life that Jesus came to give me then I'm going to give you a chance to do that at the end of the service today to ask Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you and to be born again. Okay? So I want to prepare you now so you can be preparing for that moment, you know, that opportunity. Okay, number two. Now secondly, the second principle that jumps out at me, and this is the one I really want to focus on, spend some time on, is the life that he gives. Remember, he came to give us this life. 
the life that he gives is eternal life, which is a technical term. When we talk about it, it's, the life he gives is eternal life. Now, you see this in 3.14 and 3.15. Let's look at this real quick. 3.14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Okay, technical term. Uh, verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that phrase is used, eternal life. So what's eternal life? What does he mean when he says he's come to give us eternal life? Now, on the surface, you might say, well, Mike, isn't that kind of obvious? I mean, eternal life is like life that's eternal, you know, like it goes on forever, like, you just, you just new around here? You kind of new at this? I mean, eternal life. And, and there's no question that's part of the equation. But that is by no means what Jesus, all Jesus means by eternal life. See, when, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about life without end. Because if you stop and think about it, everyone who has ever lived is going to live forever. Have you ever thought about that? Everyone who's ever lived is going to live forever. The question is not whether you're going to live forever. The question is what kind of life are you going to have? So see, when Jesus came to give us eternal life, he's not talking primarily about unending life. He's talking about a quality of life, a type of life. And, and so what he's talking about is that Jesus came to give you and I a whole new quality of life, um, the life as it was meant to be lived, the life of God coming back into humanity, the DNA of Jesus being passed into you. You see, that's the born again. We're born again, we receive a new life. It's the life of Jesus being born in our life. In the New Testament, the term eternal life, it literally means, in the Greek, life of the ages. In other words, life of the coming age. In other words, the life of eternity coming into your life here and now. See, the life of the next life experience. Now, in fact, what John is going to say and Jesus is going to say so clearly is that unless you have this experience of receiving this new life now, you won't have it then. The only way to have it then is to receive it now. And so once you catch this idea, then this becomes so prominent in the Gospel of John. This becomes one of the big picture ideas over and over again that Jesus has come to give us life, the life of God. That's why he came. And it's on almost every chapter. Uh, John chapter 4, uh, he comes to give us living water. Uh, chapter 5, he's come to give us life, life that's in himself. Chapter 6, I am the bread of of life. Chapter 7, I've come to give you the wa uh, living waters again. Chapter 8 or 9 talks about, I've come to give you the light of life. Chapter 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's like this drumbeat that goes through the book of John over and over and over. It is about life. 
He's come to give us life as it's meant to be. And this is what Jesus means by eternal life. In fact, every time in the Gospel of John it's talking about I've come to give you life, it's just shorthand for eternal life. And you get a picture of this in John chapter 17. The very last night, Jesus is with his men. Uh, He's about to be arrested. He's praying. His disciples are listening in, eavesdropping. And in John chapter 17 and verse 3, there on your note sheet, uh, look what he says. Look how Jesus defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. What, that we would live forever? No. That we may know you, the only true God And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is the life he's come to give us. It's life back in relationship with our creator. It's the life of God coming into us. It's life as it's meant to be lived. It's eternal life. It's not just living forever. It's a whole new quality of life that's characterized uh, more than anything else by our new relationship with God, this life of relationship. Now, uh, here's what I want to do. In the time that we have left, this has kind of been foundational so far. Once you catch this, you understand this becomes a big theme, a big topic of the, of the Apostle John, this concept of being born again and what happens to a person when they're born again. When this DNA of Jesus comes into you, what happens? What changes does he bring? And it's a big topic here in John, but it's even an even bigger topic in the little letter of 1 John at the end of our New Testament Uh, where John lays out three changes that happen to a person when they're born again, okay? And these become foundational for us to understand for our future growth and experiencing the life God has for us. So there in your note sheet, if you turn it over, there's a section called the New DNA, uh, Three Core Changes. And what I want to do is, is talk about these three changes that John says happens the moment a man or a woman uh, comes to Christ. They're automatic changes. These are supernatural changes. If you're born again, you'll probably recognize these changes in your life as I'm describing them. If you don't recognize these uh, realities, there's a good question. You go back and say, I, am I born again? Uh, I, I've been going to church forever. I've I've I show up, I've even been serving or whatever, but if these realities are not in our life, then we have to go back and say, could it be possible that I haven't been really born again? Because John says these are the marks that show that you're born again. So number one, to get at these, I'm going to give you three, three key words that kind of summarize what John says is the mark. Number one, <laughs> the first word is the word right, as in right and wrong. John says that the, the very first uh, change, not the first, but one of the changes that happens when we're born again is that, that there is a new internal sense of what is right and what is wrong that's given birth in our heart. Now, now catch this. This is automatic. It's intuitive. It's instinctive. It's DNA. Okay? This is not like you come to Jesus, you give your life to Christ, you go into a counseling room afterwards, and they say, now these are 14 things that you used to think are right, they're now wrong. These are 14 things you used to think were wrong, they're now right. So if you take it home, memorize the list, it's time for you to start becoming a Christian. Okay? It's not like that. It's just like the moment Jesus comes into your life, that you begin to instinctively sense some of the old things were wrong, some of the new things are right. And like no one has to tell you 
there's just like a gradually awakening. It's like springtime in your life. The old leaves are going off. The new leaves are coming. And, and no one's even telling you about uh, it. It's fun to be around new Christians and to watch this happen. As lights begin, they're like, wait a second. This doesn't feel right anymore. You remember when you first came to Christ? A lot of you, if you became Christians later on, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, wow, how could I used to think that was right? That's just weird. And how, how could I used to think that was wrong? I mean, that's so right. You know, and it's just into it, what I like to call it a new moral compass. That God puts in our heart a new moral compass. There's a new uh, uh, kind of true north in our life. There's a new hunger to do what is right, and it bothers us to do what's wrong. We, we, we may do what's wrong, but we are miserable. We are not happy about it. We are maybe enjoying the sin, but hating life. You know, and those around us usually, because we get irritable, we get cranky. We're not happy with ourselves. We, something has changed. Now, this is how John puts it. Uh, this is a key verse in First John. Uh, there, you know, First uh, John three nine through ten says, "No one who is born of God." So, notice that's the topic: being born of God. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now, John doesn't mean that we will never sin. In fact, earlier in the book, he says, "When you sin, here's how to handle it." And he says, anyone who claims to have no sin is a liar. The truth is not in him. So earlier in the same book, he's already said that. But what he's saying is no one can embrace a lifestyle of sin. No one can just, hey, this is a, I'm going to continue just going on like I was before. Okay? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Why? Now catch this, this analogy because God's seed remains in him. Do you catch what that's saying? Pretty gritty. He's saying God's sperm has come into that person's life. That's what he said, God's seed, God's sperm. We've been born again, not of human will. Remember what John said in John chapter 1? We've been born again, not of human will, not of a father's will, but we've been born of God. God's seed, his genetics, his DNA, his heredity has come into us, and there's a change. It's a supernatural change. And so he says it, he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. There it is again. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. In fact, late, uh, earlier in the chapter uh, in the book, 1 John 2, 29, next verse, you know that everyone who does what is right has been what? Born of him. So the first thing that happens is there's a new hunger, passion, perception of what's right, a desire to do what's right. First thing that happens. Number two, <coughs> the second key word is the word truth. The moment a person gives their life to Christ, there is a new perception of spiritual truth that comes in their life. It's, it's intuitive. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says that the unspiritual man cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. But we have the Spirit of God as Christ followers so we can discern the truth about these things, especially truths about who Jesus is, how our relationship, not like we get everything right, but you know, who Jesus is, our relationship with him, how he wants us to live, and that sort of thing. And so, so John says a second mark of someone coming to Christ and being born again is there's a new spiritual perception. Now, now remember, when you came to Christ, if, if you came to Christ as a little child, you may not remember all this. But if you came to uh, uh, Christ as an adult, you remember how your spiritual perception changed? Remember how you used to think that all Christians were idiots? 
Remember? How many used to think that? Yeah, yeah, see. See, yeah, it's like, I don't see how anyone could believe this stuff. They're so narrow-minded. Uh, this whole thing about Jesus, they're just stuck on Jesus and this cross thing. And what, what is this about? I think all paths lead there. I, it just makes sense to me. And, and like uh, the Bible, I believe it's the word of God. Have you tried reading it? It's like sawdust, the most boring book in the world. And, and this is how it is. And then all of a sudden, when you come to Christ, it's like, man, who changed the book? It's like, this thing's making sense. It's so clear. It's so powerful. It's like, wow. And like, well, of course Jesus is Lord. Can't you see? I mean, it's, it's so clear. He died for our sins. It's the only way. I mean, what are you talking about? But what's the apostle Paul say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't, you can't get that. But when you're born again, all of a sudden it's like the, the scales come off your eyes and it's like things get clear spiritually. And it's not something that you did. It's a result of the DNA of Jesus coming into your life. So, for example, on your note sheet, like in, uh, in John's time, there was this big problem because there were some false teachers that had actually been part of their church that had left, and they were teaching that Jesus didn't really have a human body. He didn't really have flesh and blood. He was just like a spiritual being. He wasn't really truly the Messiah of Israel. And this false teaching and what John says here in the first verse on your note sheet, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, they've come to that conclusion in their life, it's what? They're born of God, you see? It's a, something's happened to them. It's, it's a sign that they've been born of God. You don't come to that conclusion apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, earlier in the book, in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in our life and opens our minds to spiritual truth. He says, but you, talking about the people in the church, he says, uh, you have an anointing. Uh, the Holy Spirit's come in your life. You have this anointing from the Spirit, and it's from the Holy One, from Jesus. And all of us, all of you, you know the truth. As for you, the anointing that you've received from him, the Holy Spirit, he remains in you. Remember Jesus and the Holy Spirit would be our guide, our spiritual mentor. And you do not need anyone to teach you about you know, who Jesus is or that whole thing. But as, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, literally in the Greek it's just true, it's not counterfeit, just as it's taught you, remain in him. He says, you've got these false teachers. They've gone out. They don't have a clue who Jesus is. But you know who Jesus is because the Holy Spirit's come in your life. You have this anointing. He's teaching you about all things. You see it clearly. You don't even need someone to teach you on this. You're clear on it. So you just stick with the Holy Spirit. Just keep following him because he's opening your eyes to truth and, and you're, you're good. That's what he's saying. So, so a second mark of someone being born again is a new perception of spiritual truth. Okay, the third mark. The key word is love. There's these three marks in the gospel, in, in 1 John, three marks of a person being born again. Number one, a new love and understanding what's right. Number two, a new perception of truth. And number three is love. Now, this makes sense because remember uh, what we learned in John 3.16. The story behind the story is that the word became flesh he lived among us, the word who is with God, the word who was God, broke into time and space. And, and John says, and let me tell you the story behind this. I've never really summarized it, like why he came. And in John 3, he says, let me just wrap it up in a single word. The single word is love. 
that there is a God out there who, in spite of our rebellion, loves you to death, and like literally to death, the death of his son, and he will do whatever he can to bring you back. And he's given his son, and this is the God that we follow. And so guess what? When you're born again, the DNA of that God comes into you, and you have a new love in your life, a new love for God, a new love for people, and especially a new love for other family members who have been born again, brothers and sisters. And so uh, this is why when you meet Christians, it doesn't matter whether you're out camping in the middle of nowhere or riding a motorcycle in Kansas, or you meet Christians and there's instantly this sense of connection because we're family members. We share DNA. I may have never met you. I may have never had a relationship with you, but there's automatically a connection there because your father and my father is the same father, and we share. We're, we're family members, and it's intuitive, and it's instinctive, isn't it? Isn't this true? And so here he says, uh, uh, here in 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. In fact, later in chapter 4, he'll say God is love. And he says everyone who loves has been what? Born of God. It's one of the marks. And, and then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, we looked at this verse a couple minutes ago to document that the right part, that when we're born again, we have new love for what's right. I cut the verse off short because I wanted to focus on that point. But let's do the whole thing now. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him, DNA. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know the children of God are who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. That's what we learned before, this passion for what's right. But look what he says next. Nor is anyone who does not what? Love his brother. This is, he's, in this one verse, he gives us two of the three marks. And if you do a study of 1 John, you'll see this over and over again. Three marks of being born again. A love for what is right, a love for what is true, and a love for people, a love for God. Okay, okay so, so here's, what I, here's what I know. If you are a follower of Jesus, here's what I know about you. I want you to kind of lock on now. We're, we're heading into pay dirt time, right? Uh, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I know about you. At the core of your being, the deepest truth about you, the most important truth about you, is that you have the DNA of Jesus, and in the deepest part of your being, that God has written on your heart a love for what is right, a love for what is true, and a love for God and people. And this is the deepest truth about you. It is the most important truth about you. Now, you might have other desires. The Bible says we have our old desires, we have the old flesh. That's more surface. That's not the real you. When Jesus comes back, that will be gone. What will remain is the real you at the deepest part of you. Can, can I tell you that I sense this? One of the unique uh, opportunities I have as, as one of your teachers is that when I'm up here and declaring the truth of God, I can watch the Holy Spirit bearing witness in you and reflecting it back to me. This happens all the time that I'm teaching. And the more we're growing as a church, the more it happens. The more we're becoming a group of passionate Christ followers, the more it happens. 
when I'm declaring the truth of God to you, there's something inside of you you instinctively receive it, you identify it, intuitively you say yes, and you reflect back to me the truth, and that empowers me, and I reflect it back to you, and there's this going back and forth in a service that happens. As I proclaim the truth of Jesus, what is right and what is good and true and is not love, you receive it, you reflect it back, deep calls forth to deep, the DNA of Jesus calls out to the DNA of Jesus in you, you receive it, you give it back. You know what I'm talking about. You sense this happening. This is happening in our church more and more as we go along because as we're growing, we're getting in touch with the DNA of Jesus that's in us. You see? And so here's what I know about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is true about you. Do you always respond? No. Do you always follow it? No, but it's there. And what I'm doing this weekend is I'm calling it out of you. I'm saying it's time for us to wake up and be who we are. This is the deepest truth about you. You love what is right. You have a passion for what is right. You are not happy in your lives when you're doing what's wrong. You're not satisfied. You're not fulfilled because you're not living the life you were created to live. You have a passion for what is true. You have a passion to love people. I'm calling it out. I'm saying let's be who we are. See, the thing is, is that Christian growth is not automatic. We are born again but it doesn't automatically, we don't grow up. Think of what Paul said to the Corinthians. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as babes, because you're acting like mere men. You've got the DNA of Jesus, but you've never grown up. You need to let go of those wrong desires, embrace the truth about yourself and your truest instincts, and grow up to be the people that God created you to be, because only then will you experience this life that he came to give you. You see, unless we, see, the the secret of growth is very simple, though. You embrace your deepest instincts as a Christ follower. Does this make sense? You embrace your deepest instincts. Now we need to hold our Bible in our hand, make sure we're getting it right, blah, 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 blah. But the truest thing about you is you often don't need your Bible because the Holy Spirit's in you with the DNA of Jesus. He's calling forth. And to grow in him, you have to embrace that instinct. When you're out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're getting too involved instinctively, you don't need your Bible to tell you to stop. The Holy Spirit's there telling you. Hey, when you're out there on your job, and you're overcharging a customer, you're letting greed get in the way, or you're inflating a price or doing work, you don't need your Bible to say do the right thing. The Holy Spirit's all over you saying be who you are. When you're in a marriage and you don't want to serve your wife and you're tired, you don't need the Bible to tell you because the Holy Spirit's calling to you and saying lay down your rights and love her. You see, you have what you need to become all that you were designed to be. It's in your package. It's in the DNA of Jesus. You need to be who you are. And as we respond to our deepest instincts, we grow, and we experience this life that he died to give us. You know, back in March, I had a big event in my life. March 1st, uh, my oldest daughter and my son-in-law had their first child which made me a, a grandpa. I, I still have a hard time even saying that. Um, 
You know, sidebar, I'm becoming a grandfather. Um, you know, most things in your life you have some control over. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you want to get married? You get married. You decide, I want to be married. Okay, we'll get married. That's the person, you want to get married? Yes, I want to get married. Okay, let's get married. You have control. Then it comes time to, hey, do you want to have kids? Yeah, I want to have kids. I realize that sometimes there's accidents. But by and large, like, you want to have kids? Yeah, I want to have kids. I do too. Great, let's have kids. So you're in control of being a parent. I never really thought about this. But you know, when it comes to being a grandparent, you have absolutely no control. <laughs> like someone else just decides, Dad, we think it's time. We're going to make you a grandfather. Like really, I no consulting here. Like no, like can I like complain? Can I send a letter in to the editor? Can I do something that just says, I'm not ready for that? No, you can't. But anyway, she is born on March 1st, and she is now five months old, five months yesterday, and, uh, and she's really cute, really cute. Uh, her name's Tegan, and she is, uh, she's adorable, nothing biased or anything, but she's very cute, and uh, she can't do a whole lot. Very limited repertoire at this point in life. She, she can suck a bottle. Um, she's really good at eliminating waste products from her body. <laughs> down. Um, she is, uh, yeah, she's, she can smile occasionally, kind of working on that. She's really good at crying. Excellent in that department. Uh, really excelling, top of her class. Uh, she's learning how to turn over. If she doesn't think too hard, it happens. If she tries, she's still struggling. But just kind of go with the flow. She can turn over. Um, and she is beautiful, uh, and it's amazing. And she's been born, and she has the DNA of her parents, and, and she's beautiful, and she can't do a whole lot, but who cares? You know, it's five months old. It's like you don't expect a lot. It's, it's beautiful, right? The baby, it's beautiful. But you know, if she's 15 years old, still just crying all the time, Not so cute anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking Paxil. I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking antidepressants here. I mean, it's like, you know, kids are amazing. They laugh one minute, cry the next. If it was an adult, we'd put them on something, you know? What's wrong with you? You know? Ah! Ah! Uh, you know, if she's still eliminating waste products the same way when she's 15, no, it's not cute. It's tragic, right? It's tragic because, because she's never become the person she's meant to be. Now, there are some believers who have been born again, and it's really cute when they first come to Jesus. They're so cute. They don't know anything. They're just figuring it out. Isn't it great to be around new believers? I love being around new believers. Hey, but the 15 years later, they're still acting like a new believer. It's not cute anymore. It's tragic. They're supposed to be growing up and becoming like their big brother. They're supposed to have the DNA of Jesus. They, they should be powerful. They should be a warrior. They should be confident. They should be growing. Their face should be growing. They should be making a difference in this world and changing the world. And that's who they should be. And yet they're still turning over, sucking their thumb and crying and saying, feed me milk. And it's no longer cute. It's, it's tragic. Wow. And so God comes to us and he says, listen, 
I put my life on the line for you so you could grow up and become like me. I did not put my life on the line so you could stay three months old for your whole life. I put my life on the line. I went to the cross so that you could grow up and be what I created you to be. You could run with me. You could become the person I made you to be. You could soar with me. You could make a difference. I died for you so you could become what I dreamed you to be. And all you have to do is be who you are. Listen to your deepest instincts. Surrender to those. Give up the old. Do what's right. Embrace what's true. Love people. Love me. And watch out. You will be amazing. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we... uh, we want to grow up, and we don't want to be 15-year-old, three months old. And, uh, and we, we thank you, God, that you've done everything you need, that everything we need. You've given us everything that we need, your word says, for a life of holiness and godliness, of being this new people. And so, God, we, we pray today that you would help us to embrace this truth and, and to grow to be the people you've designed us to be and to let the DNA of your son take over in our life that we'd grow up to be like him. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I promised you that if you're here today and you have never given your life to Christ, I'm gonna give you that chance. And you may be here the very first time you've ever been here. You may have been here at Rocky Peak for 15 years, but honestly, you've been a church goer and not a Christ follower. You've heard sermons, you've participated, you may have done certain things of service, you may have given, but as I describe the DNA of Jesus, you honestly say, I've never experienced that, <laughs> and I want to. And so whether it's your first time or your 150th or 500th time you've been here, I want to give you a chance to ask Jesus to come into your life and to, to give you new birth, a new life. And if that's where you are today, as we, as we bow our heads, we have our eyes closed, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer that expresses the desire of your heart. I want you to Just pray along with me inside your mind, your brain, your heart, or under your breath, and ask Jesus into your life. So here we go. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for all my rebellion. I ask you to send your spirit into my life and make me new, to cause me to be born again. I ask for your DNA. I I pray you teach me how to live and how to follow you so I can live with you forever. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just prayed that prayer, at the end of our service, we're going to be collecting an offering and our registration cards that are inside of your program. What I'd like you to do, if you're serious about following Jesus, I want you to write me a note that says, Mike, I prayed the prayer. That will trigger two things. First of all, we will send you a letter this week uh, with some steps of your your new walk with Christ, some, some, some simple suggestions. We will also call you this week to schedule a time for you to be baptized because Jesus said if you're serious about following him, that's the, that's the number one thing. The first thing you do is you step into the waters, you say goodbye to your old life and publicly hello to the new life. And so we'll talk with you about scheduling that. So Lord, we, we pray now that you'd come and meet us as we celebrate this new life in the, the power of your communion. God, we pray you'd encounter us here in Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a great day to celebrate communion, huh? It's just, how much, it doesn't get much better than this. The love of God, the, the message of the one lifted up, the new life, the new DNA, and we celebrate that all in communion. You know, Jesus said 
Unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. And that's what we celebrate in communion. We, we take him into ourself, our trusting in him, and he changes us from the inside out. And so uh, we're going to be going to the communion tables. If you're a follower of Jesus or uh, if you just brand new as Christ in your life, this communion table is for you. If you haven't done that yet, that this is not for you yet, it's, this is for Christ's followers to celebrate our belief. There'll come a time when you give your life to Jesus, then that will have great meaning for you. But at this time, if you've not given your life to Christ, I just encourage you uh, not to do that. And so we're going to go into a time of worship right now. Uh, JD is going to lead us in a, in a song, just kind of sing it over us as we go into worship. Uh, feel free as we, we stand up in just a minute after I pray, we'll go to the tables. You could take the bread, take the cup, participate there. Uh, feel free to go around the room in the front, pray, do whatever you need to do just to draw close to God and to celebrate this new life that we've been given. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll move to the tables. Lord, uh, Father, we come now in the, in the name of Jesus, the one who is lifted up for us. We come in his name. We come under his claim, not our own claim. We come acknowledging that there's nothing within us that deserves this gift that we've received. We come receiving his body and his blood, shed for us his life. We participate in his flesh. We, we drink his blood together, that together we might have new life. And we celebrate that. And so in this moment, we give ourselves back to you with a new and fresh commitment to let the DNA of Jesus have its way in our life. And we celebrate his death and his resurrection for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's move towards the tables.